we're going to be discussing the book of Exodus. We're not going to um, just stay in the book of Exodus, but we're going to move into some very significant scriptures that I'm really praying that um, the Lord will unlock for all of us tonight to, as Pastor Sylvia has prayed, to give us all eyes to see and ears to hear what the Lord is saying to us. The word Exodus actually means going out. And it's basically an escape story. Um, the Israelites, you know, we know they moved to Egypt with Jacob, who was the father of 12 sons, who are each represented as one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, they left during a time of famine that was happening throughout all of the land. And then 400 years later, after Jacob and his sons had all died, the family had ultimately grown and there were now 2 million of them and they were still living in Egypt. And so when Jacob, who God later named Israel, and his sons first went to Egypt, they were welcomed and they were well cared for. But as generations passed, they ended up becoming slaves for the Egyptians, as you've read in our readings over this past week. And so God, you know, he tells us that he heard their cries and he raises up Moses to lead them on this escape route through the desert. That in itself is just remarkable. You know, we find God's greatest acts in the Old Testament, many of which are in this particular book. And to this day, the Jews still celebrate uh, a major event that we read about in Exodus every year. And it's not just something that's for the Jews, and we're going to talk more about that when we get to it, but it's the Feast of Passover. And it's obvious that the New Testament was deeply influenced by the book of Exodus. We see words in the New Testament like covenant and blood, lamb, Passover, leaven. And so this book tells us amazing things about God through what he did for other people. You know, we can see it and we can say, this is my God too. You know, God is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. So if he did it for them, he can do it for me. And there's even a greater reason why this book is relevant for us today. And it's because that what we're going to see in these passages of scripture and even what we see that is revealed to us through Paul and, and other disciples is that he, Jesus, was alive before he was born on this earth. He was consciously alive as the son of God from all eternity. And he was alive at the time of the Exodus. He was even involved in the Exodus. Jesus said to them, this is in John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He's declaring he has always been. Now, Father, John 17, 5, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Amen. You know, this is where we're reminded where the scriptures say in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh, which was Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And then Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4 in the New Testament, explaining that this exodus in the Old Testament um, was revealing to us that Jesus himself was with them. And so here's what Paul had to say. I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud all passed through the sea, which is on their way out of, out of Egypt. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate all the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Praise the Lord. So I just wanted to start there because that is our starting point. Just having that fundamental foundation that he has always been. He is God Almighty. And he became flesh. He humbled himself and came to this earth, but he's always been. And then I want to pose a question. Why do you think that God allowed um, the Israelites to get into slavery in the first place? You know, he had basically rescued them from the famine by making provision for them to go into Egypt and have enough food to survive the famine. But then they get into this uh, situation where genocide could be committed. To the people of Israel. Remember, because Pharaoh decreed that all the Hebrew boys were to be killed. It was his justice. That's what it was. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. It's God's justice that chastises. They had gone to Egypt because of famine in Israel, and God allowed them to go and get food to be provided for, but then they didn't come back. 
And it was his justice that led them to get into trouble. But more than that, it's his mercy when he allows trouble to come when we've wandered out of the place where he can bless us. And I've known this personally in my own life, that when you step out of God's will and you wander away and you get content and you stay there, God will allow you to get in trouble. He'll allow things to happen that are going to get your attention. And I love that he does. You know, he gently is saying by, by allowing that sort of thing to happen, you know, come out, leave those attractions that are holding on to you and come back to where I can bless you. And this is what chapter one says to me about God, you know, that it was his justice to allow them to suffer for staying there. But God's mercy said this suffering will make you want to come back. If they hadn't been made slaves, they might not have ever followed Moses, you know, out into the desert. They didn't really want to go. So sometimes in his mercy, God will let us suffer. So we'll want to get back. And another th thing that I see is a picture of Satan and Pharaoh and Jesus and Moses. If there's one text that's the theme of this book, it's that God says, let my people go. And Satan says, I will not. You know, I'm, he says, I'm hanging on to them. And God says, let my people go. But God can break the power of Pharaoh and of Satan. Egypt is a picture of sin. And in those days, it was a land that was self-indulgent. The Egyptians were actually very affluent. And the people of God, they actually found themselves before the slavery in affluence. They had prosperity there with plenty to wear and eat. So it was so nice that they forgot God. In Egypt, there's a river called the Nile, and this river was worshipped at that time as a god. They would pray to the river Nile. Um, Pharaoh decreed that the Hebrew baby uh, boys were to be thrown into that river, and, and they were basically, by doing that, giving them to their god to destroy them. So when Moses was born, his mother decided to keep him, so she hid him, and then she decided to put him in the very place where the Egyptian god of the river Nile took babies, but she trusted her god with him. She made a little boat with pitch and tar and put him in the river. Then we see the most ironic thing of all, that Moses is rescued by the Pharaoh's own daughter. She knew that he was a Hebrew, you know, but they believed that the river um, was a, basically a goddess of fertility. So when she saw this baby coming towards her in a basket, I'm sure she thought that this was her god of the river answering maybe her prayers. So then she looked for a Hebrew woman to nurse the child and ends up paying Moses' own mother to take care of him. And that's exactly how God works, how he can orchestrate circumstances so the most unlikely people come to our rescue or come to, our, to give us some help. But this was also God manipulating history for his own purposes. He thought this baby needed to be preserved too. And it's interesting to consider that Moses was brought up as a prince. He was given the best education. He was raised in the Pharaoh's house. And then when Moses was about 40 years old, he went out to see, you know, the people he came from, the Hebrew people, those he really belonged to. And until then, he hadn't been near them. He'd been told that he was rescued from them, brought up in the palace, trained in Egyptian manners and customs. And he saw a Hebrew being poorly treated by an Egyptian, and so he killed the Egyptian. He didn't think anybody saw him, so he buries the body in the sand, and then he goes back to the palace. But Pharaoh heard about it, and so Moses has to go on the run. And it's at this stage that the Hebrews wouldn't accept Moses as their leader. So he wanders into the Sinai desert, and he becomes a shepherd for the next 40 years. God was preparing him over all that time. 40 years, he, he thought he was somebody. He was living as a prince. You know, he was spending 40 years learning that he was actually nobody though, because he ends up far from God, far from his people. And it's, there's a lesson in that, that God will only exalt those who have been humbled. Sometimes we can actually do damage by trying to run off and do things that we're not ready for yet. Moses was alone in the desert and you'll never do anything in public unless God, uh, I mean, anything in public for God unless God can actually get you alone, because that's where it begins, just you and him. And when God called Moses to lead the people of Israel, he tried to get out of it basically five times. He'd been hasty at 40, but he was too reluctant at 80. Many people have said this, including me, who am I? 
Who am I, Lord? You know, why, why me? I'm just an ordinary person. He was a prince, but now he felt like he was a shepherd. To an Egyptian back then, being a shepherd was a detestable thing. It's good to feel inadequate if it drives you to God, but it's wrong to feel inadequate if it drives us away from God's work. It can actually be a false modesty, excessive self-deprecation. It's pride in reverse. And so one sort of pride scrambles for the front seat and the other is scrambling for the back. So if God calls you to do something and you say, I'm not the one for this, God may say, I know you're not. That's why I chose you. He's saying, I'm the one for this and I'll be with you. Moses in his initial obstinance, he was questioning two things, God's ability and God's authority in telling him to go. But finally, Moses realized that there was no option, that God had called him and he went. And although um, Moses feared the Israelites that he wouldn't accept him uh, as their leader. He's arguing with God through this. And that's what we see. And then God, you know, has, I guess, mercy on the, the plight of uh, Moses. And so he assigns his brother Aaron to be his spokesperson for him. But it did make the Lord angry that he was not just trusting him and going to speak, even though he thought that he was not eloquent with words. But what about Pharaoh? Four times, I think this is really interesting, Pharaoh actually repented. He professes repentance four times. And I'm sure if you've read in the reading, you know, you saw it. Um, he said, I'm sorry. On four occasions, he asked for Moses to pray to God to forgive him. So then why do you think Pharaoh didn't find salvation when he was sorry and he was contrite, seemingly full of remorse? Twice he said, I have sinned. And he asked Moses to pray for him, but he was never forgiven. Why? His words didn't match his heart. He said it, but he didn't really believe it. His mind was cunning. All the time, he was thinking of a way of getting the Israelites back again. In between several of the plagues, he said, I've sinned. I'll let you go, but worship within the borders of your land. And Moses said, no. Pharaoh said, well, then worship near the land, just beyond the border. Moses said, no. Then Pharaoh said, I'm sorry, I'll let you go, but leave your wives and your children here. He was thinking they'd have to come back for their wives and their children. And Moses said, no, we must take them with us. Pharaoh says, then go, but leave your possessions here. Leave your flocks and your herds behind. Moses said, no, God wants everything. We have a similar plot. Satan says, you can go, but don't get too far into this Christian thing. Don't get, you know, become a religious fanatic. You can go to church or Bible study on Sunday, but come back to me on Monday. He wants to keep us within arm's reach so we keep coming back. And even though Pharaoh was cunning in his mind, we also find something profound in Exodus. At the beginning of the chapters, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God demonstrates his justice through those who have already hardened their own hearts. Five times it says that Pharaoh had hardened his own heart, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart for him. God's message was, Pharaoh, and this is not scripture, this is what I'm paraphrasing from what we get from scripture. You know, basically, Pharaoh, as punishment for you, I'll harden your heart now. You won't come to me now, so now I'll use you to demonstrate my power, not my mercy. So what we see is Pharaoh had just gone too far. And so we see another time in the New Testament speaking of the last days when the Lord says that he will send a strong delusion on people because they refuse to love the truth of his word. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so this is something because this is truly the essence of what had happened to Pharaoh. These are people that have just rejected God themselves already. And so because he knows their heart, he knows the beginning from the end, they're now just going to be objects, objects of destruction in the end times. And so he's going to send a strong delusion that they should even more believe the lie to where they're not even able to believe the truth now because they can't even see it. And it's because they refused to love the truth. They would not receive it. We all know from reading um, over this past week that the Lord sent 10 plagues to motivate Pharaoh to finally release the Israelites. And the last plague was the one that ultimately had the greatest motivation, and it was the death to all the firstborn sons 
And this is where we learn what the Passover is all about. They were instructed to go through their flock and to find a perfect lamb with no spots or marks. Then they had to bring the lamb into their house to live live with them for three days, like a pet. So it became part of the family. You know, they're supposed to care for it in the house. They got attached to it, and I'm sure they probably loved it. I'm sure they were cute. Then they had to take that lamb and kill it. They had to take its blood and sprinkle it over the doorposts. But why? So the Bible says that when God came to that house, if he saw the blood over the door, he would say to the destroyer, you can move on. Blood has already been shed here. Where God saw a life taken, he said that the penalty has already been paid in that household. My judgment has been exercised there. The people in this house know how seriously to take my words and my judgment because they took a life so that I would pass over. The lamb over their doorpost was a substitute for a young boy in that house. Does that sound familiar? There's only one thing between me and hell, and it's the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. There's nothing else between me and God's judgment. There's nothing else I can say except you can pass over me with your judgment because Jesus has died in my place. And it's his blood that's already been shed. Jesus died instead of me. He bore my judgment instead of me. And so, Father, you can pass over me. That's what I'm confidently, that's my hope. That's what I believe. That's what scripture tells me. That's the promise and the assurance that I have of my salvation. And this is what it means to believe in Jesus, not just to think he was a great person that we'd like to know and love even. It's to say his blood covers my sin. You know, it's to understand that he has a right to judge me and to take my life because I've abused it and I've sinned with it because he's holy, but he can pass over me because I'm under the blood of your son, Jesus. And I also want us to notice that they had to apply the blood to their house. It wasn't enough that the lamb died. They had to deliberately take the blood and put it on their doorposts. If they'd neglected to do that, then the angel of death would not have passed over their home. Those were the instructions. Though Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, and anyone can claim the power of his blood, only those who apply it will find that God will pass over them. It only needed to be done once on that night, and then they were free and could now know God's mercy. But there was something else that they were told to do. After God had passed over them, they had to take the flesh of the lamb, it said, and take it and eat it. They had to nourish themselves for the journey with it. We have to feed on Christ. He is the word of God. We need strength for the journey. We need to take Christ within us, his word to nourish our soul. Then you can walk. Then you can go out into the liberty that you were meant to have. You're not finished with the lamb when you claim the blood. We feed on him daily. He is our living bread. The Bible says, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. For a follower of Jesus Christ, Passover holds an even more significant meaning for us today. This isn't a Jewish feast. God actually calls the feasts of the Lord his appointed feasts. They're the Lord's. There's a lot that we can learn from the Passover that we've been reading about in Exodus that really does relate to us now because we can apply the blood of the lamb of God over our hearts to protect us and keep us safe eternally so that his judgment, which is ahead of us, will pass over us. When John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching him, he proclaimed, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why do you suppose that the first time John ever laid eyes on Jesus, he acknowledged him that way as the lamb of God? It was because the Jewish people would connect with the word lamb, with the Passover, because they were already familiar with what the lamb represented from their experience with God leading them out of Egypt. There were two million of them that came out. They already knew this story. It had been shared from generation to generation. It was a permanent um, instruction from the Lord to continue to remind the family year after year. They knew what that meant. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John was given a vision about the end of the age. And in his vision, he heard an angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven 
or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read it, read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. It's the Lamb of God. And behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The apostle Peter gives us a direct application. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Did you get that right there? We too are in exile. We are still in this world and this place is not our home. For those who belong to Jesus, heaven is our home. Peter continues to say, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Our king is coming soon, and he's coming for a bride and a church that's part of that bride, because the bride is not just the church. Israel are the chosen people of God, and we are grafted in as the Gentile church. He's coming for a bride who's made herself ready. After the death of those firstborn sons in every Egyptian household, Pharaoh and all of Egypt uh, finally told Israel to go. They were basically pushing them out. And so the Israelites left in a hurry. And then we come to the point where Pharaoh changes his mind and he starts chasing after them again. And so God parts the Red Sea and the Hebrew people walk through the seabed on dry ground. But then the waters we know come back over the Egyptians, drowning every single one of them. And so this was more than an escape from Pharaoh and his military. This timing corresponds with something according to the New Testament. Um, and it's to our baptism in water. It came at um, exactly the point in their pilgrimage that baptism should come for us. They had already put their trust in the blood of the lamb that God might not visit them with his judgment. They were now set free from his wrath by the blood of the lamb, and they were on their way to the promised land of blessing. But the thing God wanted them to do now was to be baptized. And that's why he led them through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2 says, Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So after we believed in the blood of the lamb and we've repented and started our journey, a decisive break needs to occur between you and the life that you used to live. For the people of Israel, the Red Sea marked that break. It was the point when they'd had their last contact with Egypt and the people that held, had held them in their grip and their journey to the promised land. It took 40 years of wandering in the desert. But if you look on a map, a direct route should have taken them only two weeks. But because they had mistrusted God, he led them around the long way. Sometimes we're in the wilderness in our lives because the wilderness is where we learn, believe it or not. And the book of Exodus, it's not only an escape story. It's also an elopement. It's the story of a runaway marriage. I really want you to pay attention as we go into these next scriptures because they are pivotal. And I really want to encourage you to even get a pen and paper to write some of this down and to remind you that there'll be a video recording that's available if you want to go back through this or share it. So it's the story of a runaway marriage, the true story of a covenant made between God and his people. God was wanting to teach his people the right way to live. And so he took them to this wonderful sanctuary with a pulpit that he made himself at Mount Sinai. 
The first 20 chapters in Exodus are about how God taught his people to trust him. And the second 20 are about how he taught them to obey. This is the message that we have from both the Old and the New Testament. You've trusted him for salvation. Now obey him for blessing. We need to learn that there is a barrier between us as sinful human beings and a holy God. It's because we're born into a sin nature as a result of the fall that there's this fence between us. So God instructed Moses to put up a literal fence many yards back from the edge of his pulpit, that mountain. No man or animal could go through that fence. Our God is a consuming fire, and fire is something you respect, and you teach your children to respect fire. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not something that's said in the Old Testament. That's said in the New Testament, and it's actually said to believers. So they were being told to keep away from God's pulpit, which was like him saying, don't get over familiar. Have a healthy awe and respect for God when he's talking. Let him speak to you. They also had to have a mediator to go to God for them. Someone who was worthy to go, someone who God had chosen. And it was Moses and Aaron in their case. And the law was given through Moses as a mediator. For us, we know there's one mediator, mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. So God told Moses to tell them three times, I'm holy, keep your distance. Moses said, you know, look, you don't need to keep telling these people. You already told them once. And God said, go tell them again. One of the things that we need to be reminded of is that God is holy and he needs to be taken seriously. The other thing that happened was, of course, the fear of God. Moses told them, God came to you in this way so that from now on, you'll be afraid of sinning against him. That is the fear of God. Not the fear of God speaking directly to me, but the fear of disobeying what he says. Not the fear of God drawing near to me, but the fear of me running away from him. They were learning the lessons of the holiness of God. And now the Israelites could learn the lessons of the expectations of the holiness of God's people. The next scene is literally like a wedding service because that's exactly what it was. God had rescued them from slavery in order to marry them, in order to have a vowed covenant. The people of God, the bride of God, are going to get married to God and are going to agree to certain promises. They will say, I will. A marriage always has a covenant at the heart of it, and a covenant has certain vows and promises at the heart of it. This verse on the screen, Isaiah 54, 5, is amazing. And it's the Lord telling us that he was a husband to Israel, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. This was God's marriage with his Israel. He set them free to serve him, and he gave them their vows, the Ten Commandments. He's telling them what promises that they're going to have to make. And here are the promises in the nutshell. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall give me one day in seven. You shall honor and respect your parents and so on. And what God is saying is this. I didn't set you free from Egypt in order to let you do what you want. I didn't redeem you to be free to do anything that you like. I set you free to serve me, to be governed by me instead of being controlled by the Egyptians. Now you're coming under my will. God doesn't set us free from sin in order to be free to sin. He doesn't. He has set us free to serve him. And another thing I want to point out about the Ten Commandments is that the basis is redemption. Do you notice that God didn't give the Ten Commandments to Israel when they were in Egypt? He saved them first, and then he said, now walk this way. God in his great mercy says, get saved first. And then let me teach you how to walk right. Don't let it be the other way around. That's legalism. He doesn't say, keep my commandments and then I'll save you. He says, I will save you. Now keep my commandments. In other words, he wants grace first and gratitude second. He wants love first and law second. He wants salvation first and service second. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And we don't live under the Ten Commandments anymore, but we live by them not under them. We want to keep them because we love God. They say, 
you shall not. And we say, Lord, I don't want to anymore. In God's mercy, he brought us into a new covenant that isn't based on keeping the commandments, but on confessing our sins. That's the basis now, ongoing repentance. It's based on the new covenant of forgiveness in which God says, your sins I will remember no more. The wine in communion that we'll take tonight together is a symbol of the blood of the new covenant for the remission of sins. It's better than what they heard at Mount Sinai. We heard it at one of God's other pulpits. It was Mount Calvary, the mountain where Jesus died. I want to point out a couple of things at this point because I just feel like this is a place where we should unpack something that is so pivotal in the scriptures. Did you know that God divorced his people Israel? He divorced them. It says, then I saw through the prophet Jeremiah chapter three, verse eight, then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. It sort of presents a problem to, to think about that, that, okay, because God's not done with Israel. We know that. We know it wholeheartedly. Scripture shows us that he's redeeming Israel. He's restoring the kingdom to Israel. He's bringing the people of Israel that had been scattered because of their disobedience, scattered to all four corners of the earth. He's bringing them back right now. Prophecies being fulfilled before our eyes, just in the fact that Israel exists today and was became a nation May 14th, 1948. It's amazing. In our lifetime, we're witnessing the things that the prophets long to see. But here we are with this scripture that says God divorced Israel. And so how do we reconcile that? Well, in Matthew chapter 15, there's a story of a Canaanite woman that came to him with a request to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And for a while, Jesus didn't respond to her, and she followed him begging for mercy. And finally, the, the disciples, feeling that the woman was a bit of a nuisance, they asked Jesus to send her away. And then Jesus said this to her. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, that's an interesting statement. He's Jesus is actually, this is out of his mouth. He, this, he's saying who he came for. Well, didn't he come for us as the Gentiles? Well, he did. So we're going to unpack that and see how we get grafted into it. But his intentions on coming was only to the lost sheep of Israel. We should understand Jesus's words here, not as an outright rejection of the Gentiles, because moments later, he heals the woman's daughter because of her great faith. But in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse six, God calls Israel his people, and then he calls them his lost sheep. The Messiah spoken of throughout the Old Testament was seen as the one who would gather these lost sheep. We can find that in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, and in Micah chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When Jesus presented himself as a shepherd to Israel, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Jesus's words to the Canaanite woman also show an awareness of Israel's place in God's plan of salvation. God revealed through Moses that the children of Israel were a holy people to the Lord, chosen, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 says that. It was through the Jews that God issued his law, preserved his word, and sent his son. And this is why elsewhere Jesus tells a Samaritan woman that salvation is of the Jews. In Matthew 15, when the Jewish Messiah says that he was only sent to the house of Israel, he is simply connecting his presence with God's purpose in the Old Testament history that we're looking at right here. I'm going to put a, screen, a scripture up on the screen. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now, this is going to make a little more sense when we get to a few more scriptures that we, the Gentiles, might receive the adoption as sons. Because until he came and redeemed those who were under the law, which was the Jews, we couldn't even be adopted. He came to redeem those who were under the law. Guess who was under the law? Israel. They were under the law. Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. I want to walk through some scripture to help us better understand what's going on here. This is God speaking to his people, Israel, through Jeremiah. 
They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted? But he's, this is who he's talking to. Israel is who he's talking to when he says you. But you have played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return to me, says the Lord. So here is what we're seeing. We're seeing that it was in God's heart to show mercy, but there was also a problem. Let me show you the problem. God will not violate his word or his law. So let's read the law that God had given in Deuteronomy chapter 24 to his people who were under the law. Okay, and it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because remember, he married Israel. He said he was a husband to her becomes displeasing to her because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Remember, God himself said he wrote Israel a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is so important. He will not violate his own laws. Israel had played a harlot and by his own words, he had divorced her. And what did this mean? According to this law of God that we're looking at, this meant that the first husband had to die before she would be free from the law. Then we see Jeremiah prophesy about the new covenant that the Lord is going to make with Israel. And this is our covenant, but this is before it came into fruition, before Jesus had come to make this a reality for us. But this is God speaking it through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, the reason it says the house of Israel and the house of Judah, remember Israel, the tribes are divided. They, there was a split in the kingdom. And so two tribes were one side and 10 tribes were the other side. And so he's speaking to both all of them collectively when he says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But notice he doesn't say house of Gentiles. The covenant was not made with us as the church. We don't exist yet in this. He is making this covenant that we simply get adopted and grafted into with Israel. And it is still with Israel. So let's keep going. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. Remember, it's the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He led them out. He gave them the covenants. They broke it. Those were their vows. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. He's saying he's going to put the Holy Spirit in them because until the Holy Spirit came after Jesus had ascended back to heaven, that had not occurred unless God had given it on certain people in just instances. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will give, forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. There is a New Testament scripture in Romans that we as Gentiles in the church so often apply to ourselves, probably because we don't realize that it was actually spoken to Israel and not to us in the first place. And when I say this, I'm not saying that it doesn't have an application for us, but it's so important that we look at scriptures in context to really understand what is being said to us. This is why we, we have said from the beginning, we can't fully understand the New Testament if we leave out the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament that's going to help us unlock so much of what's being said to us in the New Testament. And so there is a term used for studying the Bible, and it's called hermeneutical. 
And it means to go back and find something the first time it was ever said, to discover, it'll help you discover the true meaning of what was being said when you find it where it was said the first time. So this means that Romans 9.25 is a hermeneutical reference because what is said here, we see said in the Old Testament first in Hosea chapter one, verse nine. So I'm going to read Romans 9, 25 and 26. It says, I will call them my people who were not my people. And we think that's us, the Gentiles and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Well, that sounds like it should apply to us because we weren't his people, but now we are because we're grafted in, right? But in Hosea, look at what the scripture says. This was the first time. This is a scripture that's being carried forward into the New Testament, but it's been said before to a people that were not his called, not his people. And it was when he divorced Israel and he says, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. All right, we're going to continue on with the scripture. That verse continues in verse 10 to say, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. And then he says, yet, because he knows the beginning from the end, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. This is the exact same thing that is said in that verse that we just shared from Romans. It says, I will call in my people who are not my people in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They shall be called sons of the living God. This is a scripture being pulled from the Old Testament, but speaking of Israel again. And so I'm going to try to, this is where it's going to culminate in another scripture in Romans. I want you to remember that God divorced Israel because of her adultery. And when Jesus hung on the cross as God, her first husband died. So she could be set free from the law and marry another husband, her resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now listen to this verse. Paul, when he, this is in your Bible in chapter seven, verses one to six, he starts out this way. This is from the quote is Paul speaking. It says, he says, or do you not know brethren? He's speaking to his Jewish brethren. And then he tells you again, in case you are wondering who he's talking to, he says, for I speak to those who know the law. He's going to say something about the law to those who know the law because they will uh, understand what he's trying to say to them. He says, <clears throat> the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law. He is basically repeating the law from Deuteronomy 24 that we just read a min minute ago. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. He is bringing this culmination to those who know the law, explaining to them exactly what, what, what we've just unpacked, that God divorced Israel because of her adultery. Jesus hung on the cross as God, her first husband died to release her from the law so she could be set free from the law and marry another husband, her resurrected Messiah. Jesus said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. The law has not been changed it has been fulfilled. This is what Jesus did. He set her free from the law so she could be married to her bridegroom. And this is the wedding supper of the lamb that we are waiting on. This is the church that God says he's coming for a bride who has made herself ready, the spotless bride who is standing in holiness because we're still 
believing this word of God. We aren't believing the lie or rejecting the truth of his word or misunderstanding because our fathers and forefathers have inherited lies. There have been lies inherited all through church history, all through many divisions and all kinds of different doctrines that have risen up and people have misunderstood and missed even the message of what it is that God has done, this amazing thing that the Lord has done and what he has shown to reveal through his prophets. He's revealed to us his purposes. And through Paul was explaining it to the people of God, why he had to come. And it ties right back into when Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. There, I came only for them. So he even goes on in the end of that verse that I'm referring to, to say it's because of that, that we can now get adopted in. He had to he had to bring those that were under the law. He had to redeem them from it. He came to redeem Israel from the law, which has in turn grafted us in to redeem us as well. Amen. Praise the Lord. I know that that was an awful lot. I know it was a lot. And I have a couple more slides with questions, but truly, um, I just, I really just want to open it up and, you know, really just ask you, um, you know, does that resonate with you as you hear these scriptures? Has the Holy Spirit borne witness with the word as you've heard this tonight, if you're willing to share or want to share? And do you see the links that the Lord will go to keep his word and his law? He is not a man that he should lie. He is so serious about his law and his word that he holds himself to it. And we even see that in the covenant that he made with Abraham, where he made the covenant and he cut the animal parts. And he basically said, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, let this what's been done to these animals, which is basically to kill them, let it be done to me. He will keep his word. He is a promise keeping God. And so I just want to pause for a moment and leave you. Um, again, with those questions. I know that everyone probably has a whole lot of notes and things that they need to be able to seek the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want to encourage everyone as whoever's waiting so that you can ask your question or speak, speak uh, next. Let us not allow our walls to... Um, Oh, okay, Lois, I see you, so we'll come to you next. Don't allow the walls to go up because perhaps you've heard something that you've not heard before or there's a battle and a tug going on. This is what we must understand is the perfect opportunity for us to seek the Lord and ask God questions. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, is the one that will teach us, amen. And he will lead us in to all righteousness. He is the one that searches the things above and then he comes and reveals them to us. Many ways the scripture has been watered down and God is bringing us back to the truth. And he's helping us to understand Israel's position and their relationship with him and the church's relationship with Israel and with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I pray that God will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, but I also pray that he'll give us a hunger and a thirst for his truth and for his righteousness and that we will be among those that will live by the word of God, not out of obligation, but out of love. Amen. Okay. Uh, Krista, that was, it was great teaching. There's so much, there's so much to digest and I'll have to definitely watch this over again. Something I wrestle with having, uh, like you said, there's so many um, things that we have to unlearn because of the scriptures being watered down. And so the divorce and the scriptures that you said, putting that together with what I loved how you presented how Christ went through, our father went through such extremes so that we could be made ready for him, acceptable as, as his bride. I think it's the, the only thing that I'm not 
I still just go back and forth on is understanding that the law is not something that we have to do for our salvation. We do it because we want to obey. So when you start saying that it's like that specific law, he took care of the need of the death with his sacrifice so that we could come to him as his bride, but he didn't get rid of all the laws. So it's so hard to put this into words. So, so I go back to Matthew five. What was it? I go back to Matthew five, 17 to 19, when he says that not one jot or tittle will, will um, pass away. So, so that means the laws are, have been established and that we are to be serious about them, but not with the burden of, of um, condemning ourselves if, in fact, we don't adhere to everything that's been written because we're still learning that that's our growth process because we are not, we were not, me personally, I'm not Jewish. So, so um, it's, it's like relearning things because we're part of Israel because we are grafted in so we would do what Christ did and so that that's a challenge for me because if we would do what Christ did as Christians as believers as followers of Christ wouldn't we want to follow the feast days wouldn't we want to do all the things that are written because those are for us as well well yes and as we learn about them those are things that we realize we're invited to but we're not required to and we do see that in scripture we're not required um, to keep the feasts you know the new testament scriptures have made that clear for us um you know and you're right the jesus said not one jot or tittle will be removed from the law until heaven and earth pass away so the law has been established and it's there for a purpose. And, you know, God is the same. So if he abhorred something, then he abhors it now. And so, yes, we are not trying to keep the law to earn salvation, but we're not under it anymore. We are living by it out of our love relationship. And he's sanctifying us by his word. And it's you know, like as we read the scriptures, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's this whole beautiful, um, you know, transforming us from the inside out through the washing of his word. And as he brings us into deeper revelation, you know, the Bible tells us to whom much is given, much is required. You know, so we there are going to be different levels and pe of penalty for, you know, the one who knew what to do but did not do it. Those things are sin, but the one who didn't know, you know, it you'll be judged differently. You know, he says he'll be some with few stripes and then some, you know, with more um, in, in the day of judgment. And so we do see God is, he is just, but to me, as the Holy Spirit gives us revelation and we come into the place that we have understanding and he's speaking to our heart, we're not supposed to squelch the spirit and we are supposed to be obedient you know, to be led by the spirit. And where Jesus said, if we don't remain in him and my word remain in you, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And he says that if we don't remain, if we don't abide, then we're like a branch that's broken off and thrown into the fire. So this is the whole key for us is that in this process of, like you said, Lois, learning, you know, he's gracious with us. He, cause he even knows how weak we are. You know, he says, some are on milk, some are on meat. He knows where we are in the process and he's he's leading us by his spirit. And as he's giving us more understanding, it's really for our benefit because we begin to grow deeper in the things of God. It's the same thing Paul said when he's like, you guys should be on meat by now, but you're still on meat. You're still just talking about like basic things of God, you know, just repentance and coming to Jesus, basically, you know, just not the deeper things of the Lord. Not that there are some new revelation outside of scripture, but it's like the revelation that's in the scriptures. And that's, I believe, what we're unpacking tonight. The revelation that's actually already here for us to see if we're just digging a little deeper. I don't know if my um, my sharing and response has, has you know, helped with what you're um, explaining, but, um, I you know, I just believe we are in a process and the law is has not gone anywhere 
we are just living by it, not under it. You know, so we're learning these things and and God is who he says he is. And I think to me, what it reminds me the most and where I think we all should be is to have a healthy fear of the Lord. He is who he says he is. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. I'm not going to stand before God with any pastor who gave me an answer or any of you or anybody else. I've got to stand before him by myself. And so I, I want to work that out. You know, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I got to work this out when I see these things that kind of contradict what I think or what I've been taught, you know, and, and maybe there's just something else that the Lord needs to show me in scripture to help ease my mind about something. But I'm, you know, it's that process of just letting the Holy Spirit reveal to us what he's, what he's saying to us individually. I think also just to remember why God gave them the commandments, the statues and the decrees. Amen. You know, from the Jewish culture, there's over 663. He already knew they would not be able to keep them for salvation, but they were set. And the same purpose for them now is to, they came out of a pagan nation that had all kind of gods that practice all kind of crazy stuff and worship uh, pagans, pagan traditions, so on and so forth. The purpose for it was he was bringing them into holiness and demonstrating them what it meant to be holy and set apart for the one and only God. So the Ten Commandments and the feast are not for our salvation, but it's still so that that distinction can be there. And we are not in, we're in this world. We're not of this world. God says he's holy. So be ye holy. Amen. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of what? unrighteousness. He convicts us and brings us into holiness. He convicts us of sin. So the laws that are not going to change are there so that, again, we know what's set apart and living holy unto God, what sanctified me, what that looks like, um, you know, what it means to be consecrated un unto God. Yes, we are justified, but there is a holy and a sanctified life we are to live. There was something that went away after uh, the, resur the resurrection, and it's the ordinances. The mm. ordinances that were required to fulfill the law in purification, in, in helping the people become holy, because that was the sacrificial system. All of that is what was, that's mm. been mm. what was done away with, because Jesus fulfilled it by being that once and for all sacrifice. In Romans, it uh, tells us that it refers to it in uh, one translation that the law was a schoolmaster mm. to bring you to, to Messiah. It talks about a child. He's the heir of the father. But as a child, he doesn't have the capacity. He has to come into being a son. And the law was given as that schoolmaster to teach us. As a tutor. Is As a tutor. Mm -hmm. But when he came of age, he came and paid the price that was required in order to carry on the Father's purpose. Christ fulfilled it all. We simply walk where he directs us. Amen. And that's where we can have the confidence in our salvation, because that's why it says there is no condemnation to right. those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. So we might mess up. We make mistakes every day, potentially. You know, I mean, we are we struggle with the flesh. Paul did, too. He's like, I have to beat my body into submission. Why does my flesh not do what I, you know, I don't do what I want to do and, and vice versa. And so the flesh is always going to be a struggle for us but that is where we can rest in the fact that as long as we are abiding in him we can continually just 
repent, repent of those things that we do that we get frustrated with or that we realize we've fallen short and it's done, it's over, it's covered again in the blood of the lamb. And so there's no condemnation for us because we're walking in this ongoing attitude of repentance and an ongoing process of sanctification through the word of God, you know, and the washing of his word to transform us. He knows when you come in true repentance, and not just coming just to say, okay, forgive me, and then go on and continue to do the things that you're doing. The teaching tonight was wonderful. And this is what this Bible study is all about, breaking it all down and bringing it all together where we can understand what God is saying and, and the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Amen. So at this time, we'll go ahead and, and share communion together. I, I do want to say something, though, before we do. I want to give a moment to search our hearts and to repent, because there's a scripture in 1 Corinthians, and it tells us it's a warning that Paul gives us about taking communion. And he says, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and bloody blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. And so before we partake of communion, I believe we need to heed this warning from Paul. And I'm just going to have a moment of silence for one minute and just ask the Lord to search your heart and just repent, you know, of, of anything the Lord reveals to you. Um, so that we can come before his throne with clean hands and a pure heart as we partake tonight. And remember, um, also, um, when it says, for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment. I also want to say, I think it's important that we recognize who the body of Christ is. And it says that if we, we need to be honoring the body. Well, the body is not just the Gentiles. It's the Jews and the Gentiles. We see that his chosen people, his peculiar nation, his royal priesthood, this nation of Israel that he has chosen for himself, that is God's people. And we have been grafted into it. And we need to recognize and honor that that's the, that is the order. That's the order God has established for his body. Um, and so we, it's set telling us to honor the body of Christ as we eat and partake. So let's just honor what God has established as his body. I'll just go ahead and mute myself and just let's take a moment. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. And it says that the Lord took some bread and he gave thanks for it. And then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you took our place. You took the punishment that we deserve, Lord, that you made a way for us to be part of your family. Father, we thank you that you took stripes and you were beaten. We remember, Lord, what you did. We've just read about the links that you went to redeem your people, the links of your love, Lord, that we can't even fully comprehend. And we thank you. And so we receive right now this symbol, this bread, symbolizing your body that was broken and beaten for us so that we might be healed and restored. And we remember your sacrifice. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. 
Father, we thank you for your covenant. And it's just so beautiful how we've seen it tonight, Lord. And again, we recognize that you came for Israel. You came for Israel, Lord. And these are your people and it's your firstborn and your heart longs to restore this kingdom to yourself. And so, Lord, we thank you for your blood. We thank you that you've grafted us in and adopted us, Father, and that we, too, can be just like natural-born citizens, Lord. We can share in the inheritance. You're such a good God. You're such a good Father. We thank you for your blood, Father, that truly covers our sins. Your word says, it promises to us that you will remember them no more, that they will be gone as far as the east is from the west. This is the covenant that you've made with us, Lord, the forgiveness of our sins, Lord, when we submit to you and depend on your atonement to make us clean. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your blood that washes away our filth and helps us to stand before you righteous in your righteousness. In the mighty name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come with hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving because you have demonstrated over and over and you continue to your great love that you have for us. We thank you that you gave us your son. And Father, the only beloved begotten son you gave on our behalf, demonstrating your love and your desire to be with us. We thank you that you have freed us from sin and Satan is no longer our taskmaster, but we are one in you. In Ephesians, it says over and over again, in Christ, in Christ. So we thank you, Lord God, that in Christ we live, we move, and we have our being. I pray that you will bless everyone that's on tonight. And God, that you will take each and every one of us into deeper revelations. And God, that you will unfold, Holy Spirit, your word in greater depths because deep cries out to deep and that we can go and get that understanding. We know that so much of your word is a mystery, but you do not desire for us to remain ignorant. You unfold the mysteries. So Father, I pray in Jesus' name that as we depart one from another, but never from you and never from your word, that you will give visions and dreams. Holy Spirit, you will expand upon this word so that we can know exactly what the Father is saying so that we can walk in him and walk in holiness. We thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, for you pray that we will receive another comforter and he has come. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Bless everyone in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Shalom, shalom, everyone. God bless you all. And we will look forward to seeing you again next Monday. If you have questions or you want to share something, if you weren't able to share tonight, feel free to send an email to admin at tourofruth.com or a prayer request. If you have that, we will be sending out information soon on um, a prayer room that's going to be available on Wednesdays. Pastor Sylvia will begin leading that. Um, there'll be four times uh, available and we'll just... Um, see what the Lord does as we continue to come before his throne and, um, and invite you to join us in prayer. We'll be sending more information about that in the email and on online within the next week. So God bless you all. Shalom. 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 Bye-bye. Shalom. 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 Shalom.